Case number 21-3422, Eastern Missouri, Felicia Stone et al. versus J&M Securities. All right, Mr. Voidas, we'll hear from you first. May it please the court. Judges Woolman, Colleton, and Strauss, thank you for hearing me. My name is Rick Voidas, and my clients are Jerome and Felicia Stone. We are the appellants in this matter. The first issue before the court is whether the district court properly remanded the Stones case after the Stones Rule 59 motion in the district court. This happened on January 26, 2022, shortly after the district court reviewed uh, the uh, appellate brief on the issue of whether the district court had to remand the case. The district court did have jurisdiction to remand, and its decision to remand cannot be challenged by JM on appeal or in the district court itself. The case should proceed in the circuit court for the city of St. Louis. This is pursuant to the Eighth Circuit uh, ruling in MIF Realty versus Rochester and Associates contained an analogous fact pattern, and the court held a party's notice of appeal does not divest the trial court of jurisdiction on a Rule 59e motion. And that's exactly what happened here. The Stones filed their Rule 59e motion. The court was silent. The district court was silent on that, unfortunately, for a while. Out of an abundance of caution, the Stones filed the notice of appeal in this court and started briefing, but the Rule 59e motion the district court always had authority uh, to rule on that and remand the case, which it did. So this court does not have to get uh, to the other issues in the case based on that. Um, question about the Rule 59E. My understanding is it wasn't labeled a Rule 59E motion. Um, the district court construed it as such. Um, do we have to take that construction of the motion um, and the rule came under as gospel, or can we review that? And if so, if we do review that, uh, is there some standard of review we would apply. The court does not have to take the district court's word uh, as gospel. This court's standard of review in this matter is de novo. Just because the nominal title of that motion was not Rule 59E, it was a motion to amend judgment, specifically to amend the judgment to add that uh, the case must be remanded to the city of St. Louis. On that point, Judge Strauss, I think that the district court got it correct. I think it was a Rule 59E motion. The second issue uh, before the court is related to the first one, another procedural issue, and it's whether the district court, uh, if its opinion is, is correct, mistakenly failed to remand the Stones case to the circuit court for the city of St. Louis. Um, that's tied up with the first issue. The district court clearly ruled this court wants to accept its decision is correct. The district court clearly ruled that the Stones lacked Article III standing. The district court simply missed the fact that this case originated in the city of St. Louis and was removed to federal court shortly thereafter. Um, the authority that we've cited in our papers is that if the court wants to reach this conclusion, the case has to be remanded again back to the city of St. Louis. Uh, getting to the remaining issues on appeal, they're also procedural, and this court, um, the merits of the, of the appeal is whether uh, J&M can collect from the Stones in state court so-called prejudgment court costs for which J&M never filed a bill of cost and where the circuit clerk 
never approved such cost. The inclusion of these court costs in various garnishment forms resulted in numerous misstatements of the debt. These court costs were actually garnished from the stones uh, in this case. Uh, we rely on the Riggs and Montoya cases that we've cited in our paper. Um, Montoya is especially instructive, and Riggs relies on Montoya. Um, that case, um, there was an appeal of an order denying a motion to strike a bill of costs, and because the circuit clerk never taxed the cost, there was nothing for the court to review. Here we have J&M never filing a bill of costs, the circuit clerk never taxing a bill of costs, but later on during the collection process, JNM took some amounts that it represents our prejudgment costs and added those on to the garnishment. Whether those costs are right or wrong or owed or not is clearly uh, not right because they never submitted a bill of costs. Without following the proper procedure and submitting the bill of costs, it's irrelevant that the circuit court invited them to do so. Uh, of course, the circuit court awarded costs to the victor, in this case, JNM. That invites JNM to file its bill of costs, and then the circuit clerk has the statutory authority to review the bill of costs and approve those costs that can be approved. That never happened. We have JNM acting as its own circuit clerk, saying, Trust us, we get these costs, and then taking that money from the stones. This deprived the Stones of their right under Missouri Supreme Court Rule 7705 to challenge any of those costs. And in any event, the procedure, the impropriety of the procedure, uh, is such that uh, it leads to the FDCPA violations, at least some of them in this case. Uh, the next issue before the court is whether JNM is liable to the Stones for misstating the amount of the debt on multiple occasions. And even if JNM could tax and collect the court costs all by itself without filing a bill of costs, JNM botched the amount of the debt numerous times by inflating the interest and principal amounts on numerous, on numerous garnishment forms served on the stones, um, in addition to a statement of judgment balance due uh, dated May 25, 2019. The errors on that statement of judgment balance and the errors on the garnishment forms are briefed extensively in our papers. The next issue on appeal is whether JNM violated the FDCPA by hanging up on Felicia Stone. Felicia Stone received, her testimony was received, these garnishment forms and the statement of judgment balance and the judgment balance ping-ponging around, she could not make sense of it. She just wanted to pay the amount that was owed and stop the garnishment. And so she called JNM and said, just tell me how much I owe. And they hung up on her. The owner of JNM testified that he thought Felicia Stone might really be a consumer lawyer. Maybe even me, he testified, calling to trick him. So he wouldn't give her her balance, and he hung up. In light of the failure of JNM to adequately and properly state the balance due on any of the garnishment forms of the statement of judgment balance, we believe it was an FDCPA violation, an unfair collection practice to refuse to divulge the balance to Ms. Stone when she actually asked over the phone. The remaining issues on appeal have to do with the state law claims. The state law claims are derivative 
of uh, our federal claims, of our FDCPA claims, and for the reasons that uh, I've articulated, uh, our state law claims uh, should proceed. More was collected from the stones than was owed under the judgment. If the panel has any questions, I'm happy to answer them. Very well. Thank you for your argument. I'll reserve the remainder of my time, please. Thank you. All right, Mr. Klein, we'll hear from you. Why don't you give Mr. Wells just a minute there. May it please the court. Summary judgment was properly entered by the district court in September 21. And the key point, your honors, is that this adjudication was a merits determination. The court reached the merits of the case. The court determined that on the four claims that were raised, the merits were determined to be in favor of J&M. When you have a merits determination, there cannot be a remand. 1447C speaks about a remand prior to final judgment. A summary judgment is a final judgment. A summary judgment in this case, and I think in almost every case, but at least the ones we're dealing with right now, excuse me, is a determination on the merits. When you have a merits determination, you can't have a remand. I just want to say that almost by definition, your honors, if you had a remand where there was a summary judgment resolving the merits, on all these removal cases, <coughs> excuse me, you would have a remand. Because after the court determined there's no claim, well, then there's no concrete injury, and then you would remand the case. It doesn't make any sense. Well, concrete injury, though, is part of a jurisdictional uh, analysis, right? It's standing. And so isn't, by definition, a standing analysis means the, the court doesn't have subject matter jurisdiction over that particular claim because there's no injury? That's not a merits determination, is it? Not if it was reached prior to the merits determination. So when you say merits determination, are you talking about the state law claims, or are you talking about the, uh, the Federal Debt Collection Practices Act claims? All. Okay. All of them. The court decided there was no FDCPA violation. The court decided there was no MMPA, there was no wrongful garnishment, there was no abuse of process. The issue as to the concrete injury, or you look at what was pled at the time of removal. <clears throat> Sorry, and you see, in that removal, does it state an injury at that point in time? Or like when you talk about a $75,000 amount for diversity. You want to look at what is being pled at that time. Once you dispose of the claims, once you reach a determination that the merits of FDCPA don't give rise to a claim, well, you're not going to have any damages, obviously. You're not going to have any. By definition, Judge Strauss, you would not have any money left in the claim because there is no claim. Isn't the idea, though, I'm going to ask this a different way. Isn't the idea that when you basically put in a claim over which there's, in, in the removal statute, over which there's no jurisdiction because there's lack standing, the claim isn't ripe, 
um, you know, there's no statutory cause of act, whatever. Um, and actually, that might, even, might not even suffice the last one. But isn't the point then that you should return the case to state court once you determine that you don't have jurisdiction over that claim? Or am I missing something? Well, you'd have to do that if that determination was reached prior to the merits determination. So, for example, I was looking, like, there was a case that was tried and appealed here, uh, Stanley versus Cottrell. It's an Eighth Circuit case, 784 F3rd 454. Now, if this was true to its logical extreme, you could have a trial. And at the trial, you would determine <coughs> there's no cause, you know, the court found that there's no damages, there's no claim. Should that also be remanded? You have to reach a point in time when you reach the merits of a case, there's no more remand. Because otherwise, you all, every time you have a trial, you would have a remand. If there would be a trial, it's, and if the case would be removed, and then you'd say, okay, was there $75,000? Well, it was pled, but there was no finding that it was $0 of damage. Do you remand that case? Of course you don't remand the case. There's a final judgment. There's an adjudication on the merits. What do we do with MIF Realty and, and the Rule 59E? Rule 59E says even if there is a final judgment, I think, you can go in and you can amend the judgment. That's the point of Rule 59E. So what do we do with the fact that MIF Realty says you can do that even after a notice of appeal is filed? And here the district court went back and said, oops, I really, really shouldn't have dismissed the state law claims. I'm going to redo that and send them back down the way I should have. Right. So my first point, <clears throat> sorry about the need a little water. But anyway, uh, my first point was, I think, dispositive of the court's question, but I'm going to come back to it in just a moment and answer your question directly. 59E is what the trial court, the district court, relied upon in saying that she made a mistake and in sending it back down to the, to the state court. I think the court was of the belief that since the exact issue was being pursued by appellants, the issue as to uh, should the matter be remanded, you can't pursue the same case in the appellate court, the same argument, brief the issue as you're pursuing in the district court. That's why the district court reached that ruling, to avoid inconsistency, and that's why she determined that 59E was applicable at that time to amend the judgment. What do I think about that? It's a closer call for me, to be honest with you. I think that the issue of should you file a motion to stay the appeal because the district court is still looking at or dealing with it, I know the rules provide for that. I think that's a fair comment that can be considered by your honors as to why 59E can be used by the district court, because that motion was not filed in this case to stay it. But regardless of 59E, you still get back to the same conclusion, which is a remanded case cannot, a case cannot be remanded after final judgment. And even <coughs> 1447D, that doesn't want to allow for challenges of remand, that's only if you follow the rules of 1447C. If you're within the purview, we cite a case in our brief. If you're within the purview of 1447C and the court makes a determination, then you shouldn't appeal. 
You shouldn't appeal that determination of a remand. But if you had a case, as I mentioned before, suppose after a judgment on the trial of a case, the district court, for whatever reason, remands the case back to the state court. At some point in time, there has to be an understanding that such a decision, uh, we cite a Supreme Court um, decision, Thurmstrand prods against uh, Hermannsdorfer. We cite that. Where the 1447C order is beyond, <clears throat> we're not talking about something stated in the statute. If you follow 1447C, then you don't have an appeal. But if you don't follow 147... What do you mean by follow? I mean, even an erroneous remand order is not appealable. Well, as long as, Your Honor, that would be as long as... That's what I think the Supreme Court is saying in Thermostrom. As long... Thurmstrom. Thurmstrom. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, sorry. As long as... You follow the basic rules of 1447C, which says you remand before final judgment. You can't remand after final judgment. You just can't make up a remand order like I gave you. Judge, Judge if you had a remand after the trial, would you say, well, sorry, we can't, we can't look at that on appeal because you can't challenge a remand. At some point in time, where the trial court does not follow the rules, not just a discretionary question, not just a question. There's so you're a, there's saying it would have been different if the judge had entered this remand order in her initial summary judgment order? Then it would not be appealable? But no, not in this case, Your Honor. But Sorry. because she did it on 59E, then it's appealable? I'm not saying that. Okay. Then you, I'm still not tracking then. What's the... I'll try it a different way. You can only remand if you follow the rules of 1447C. If you make up your own rules, you can't remand. If you remand the case after trial, you can't, be, you can't say, well, a party can't go to a court of appeals and challenge that. There is a point in time where the removal, the, the issue, I think this is what the Supreme Court says, <clears throat> when the removal was imprudent and without jurisdiction, then you don't have a removal, a challenge, an appeal on 1447D. But that's not what happened here. The removal was fine. There was no issue with that. The only issue comes if you make a determination, you say, after there's a final judgment on the merits, the matter should be remanded. In that case, there has to be a remedy where you go to the Court of Appeals and say, the trial court, the district court, is exceeding what it is allowed to do on their 1447C. That's what I believe the Supreme Court is stating in that case. There has to be room after a final judgment. Otherwise, I think we would have this issue if you had a trial and the district court remanded the case where they find that there's no, uh, no injury in fact, after a four-week trial, you'd say, well, you can't appeal that. Of course you could. Of course you could. Your Honor seems pained by my argument. No, I'm not pained at all. What, I just what, feel... What went wrong here? Who, who brought this problem about? You? 
What, what are you referring to, Judge? Why did, why did this happen? I don't know. Well, somebody brought it about. Somebody asked the district court to do something that you now say it shouldn't have done? Appellant asked the district The court entered summary judgment. The case was closed. Appellant asked the, in a motion for the matter to be remanded. That's what happened, Your Honor. Then the court did that and then entered the 59. And you said she didn't have jurisdiction to Correct. Do, which she was wrong. Correct. I said two reasons. One, because it was up on appeal, and two, for the reasons that we've been talking about this morning. And so the narrow issue before us is what? what? The district court had no authority to do what it did? The narrow issue is... After a summary judgment where, Your Honor, there is merits determination of the claim, does a district court have a right to remand a case at that point in time when it finds no merit to the claims themselves? (coughs) But I thought the judge here said, first I said there was no standing. And then I went on and ruled on the merits. And then in her second order, she said it was a mistake to go on to the merits because I had already said there was no standing. So if that's what she said, if she really did say no standing, what's wrong with her remand order? My understanding, Your Honor, as to the decision was the only reason there is no standing is because there is no claim. And the only reason there is no claim is because the merits have been determined. I see. As I indicated, every merits determination, I want to say every, that's a big word, but most merits determinations would then lead to no standing. And then you'd have every case being remanded. Um, (laughs) Down to just a couple of minutes here, and I... I'm sorry, Judge Wilm, did you want to ask me <laughs> No, I've asked too many. <laughs> I just want to say about the issue of the cost, very briefly, costs were mentioned in the underlying judgment. Uh, the clerk did follow an order on CaseNet where the costs were noted. I, we talk about this extensively in our brief. The issue as the cost is, and, and I believe most practicing attorneys understand, Bills of cost are filed, and the case is cited by appellant, when you have cost incurred outside the court file. The filing fees, the sheriff's fees, or there are hundreds, I've been practicing 40 years, there are hundreds of thousands of cases where the judge says cost awarded, and the clerk goes ahead and just writes an entry in the case net, and whatever is in the file the filing fee, the sheriff's fees, no one disagrees with that. If somebody disagreed, they would file something, but it's always in there. The issue in all the cases cited, Montoya, Riggs, these are video deposition costs. These are costs that needed to have identification of the statute. But when you have a clear what's in the court file, that is part of the record, and that was awarded in this case. Once that was awarded, all the garnishment issues, and we talk, talk about all of them in our brief, were there couple of things in my remaining few seconds. There was a couple of mistakes mentioned with regard to the garnishment where there was a line in the middle that was in error perhaps 
but the bottom line was correct. And as we point out, a dollar due is a dollar due. So if there was a miscalculation, but the bottom line of the garnishment was correct, then there's nothing wrong. And lastly, there was um, there was a, an issue about a dollar four that was extra garnished by the um, employer. The garnishment was of an extra dollar four, and once okay. that was received, we sent it back, and I don't think that creates any violation. Thank you, Your Honor. All right, very well. Thank you, Mr. Klein. Do you care to make any rebuttal? Briefly, you may. You may. In response specifically to Judge Woolman's question, I thought it was an interesting question, one I hadn't thought of until he asked it. But as soon as you asked that, Judge Woolman, I thought, well, this is the case of the dog that caught its own tail. Because what happened here in the district court was these folks spent an awful lot of money, thousands of dollars on a CPA expert who argued there can be no foul here because there was no harm. At the end of the day, our garnishment forms were wrong, the statement of judgment balance was wrong, but the stones weren't harmed, is their argument. Because when we do all the numbers and we run all the interest, we find that they really didn't pay anything more than they would have had to under the judgment. Their whole argument in the district court was no harm. They caused the problem because they removed the case under federal question jurisdiction and then spent many months trying to convince that district court that there was no Article III standing. Their briefs in the lower court explicitly invoked the lack of Article III standing of the Stones. And by golly, that dog caught its tail. Maybe they were surprised when the judge actually granted that motion for summary judgment. But they had done too good of a job because the case did not originate in federal court, but it was removed there. And as far as the, the timing requirement that they want to impose on 1447C, 1447C has a timing requirement built into it that they've totally ignored. And it is, and I quote, at any time before final judgment, at any time before final judgment, if the district court finds that it lacked jurisdiction, it must, not may, but must remand the case. In this case, the Rule 59E motion to reconsider, the court got that. And, and she wrote, as such, this is her order on page 5. We've sat this in our papers. As such, the statute and case law are clear that in removed cases lacking subject matter jurisdiction, the court must remand the case. She continues, because the court found that plaintiffs lack standing to bring their FDCPA claims the court never had jurisdiction over plaintiff's claims, and it was manifest error to rule on the merits of those claims. The court had the authority under Rule 59 and under Section 1447 to amend her final judgment, to amend it and to correct her mistake because she genuinely found that there was no standing she followed 1447C. If this case is about following 1447C, the district court eventually got it right. But this case is odd in one, which wrong, one respect. So if you didn't have the MIF realty, MIF realty, whatever it is, um, it'd be a little bit 
harder for you because there's at least an argument that even if the district court makes a mistake, maybe there needs to be some element of finality here, and maybe 1447C when it talks about uh, the fi- and, and D when they talk about the final ju- C final judgment, um, it's trying to put some element of finality. So the district court doesn't come back five years later and say, "Oops, I really should have remanded this back to state court." Do you agree with that? Well, I agree with your basic premise. I mean, what you say makes sense, but you know, there's there's a time requirement for filing that Rule right. 59E. So this can't really continue ad infinitum. And in this case, the Stone's 59E motion was filed, I believe, four days after that summary judgment order came down. So there's no dispute that it's timely in this case. And Judge Strauss, this is not a case where we have a full jury trial and later on, years down the road, the court says, oh my goodness, there's no Article Three standing and it goes back. So those facts simply aren't before the court. Your premise, generally, I see where you're going. But you know that's, I think, one of the reasons you know, why you know, we cited the MIF Realty case, because it does provide some clarity on this. And, you know, the Eighth Circuit has, has ruled on this issue, has encountered these facts, and, and, and has ruled. And I think that you can snap that framework, um, you know, over this case. And on the merits of the cost issue, there was one issue I'd like to rebut. Um, my opponent made a statement that the circuit clerk entered an entry on CaseNet taxing the costs. It's impossible. And it couldn't have happened because they never filed a bill of costs. He's been practicing for 40 years. I've been practicing for 20, and I've never known an attorney so negligent that after a win, he fails to take five minutes and file a bill of costs. Happens in every case. Now, in this case, JNM's owner was his own lawyer on these garnishments, and he's the one. He's a, he's a non-lawyer, but he's the one that filled out these uh, garnishment forms, and he's the non-lawyer who made the decision to throw in, as we briefed, uh, throw in these these prejudgment costs. And to say that it's standard practice uh, for a Missouri lawyer to not file a bill of cost, that belies uh, the rule. Uh, without a bill of costs filed, Missouri Supreme Court Rule 7705 could never be implicated. So the judge has to award the cost to the prevailing party. The circuit clerk has to tax them before the winner can collect them. And then 7705 provides, provides a means by which an aggrieved party, such as the Stones, can come in and challenge those costs. So I don't think it's accurate that the circuit clerk filed a bill of cost on CaseNet. I think there's a CaseNet entry that copies the language. Some clerk somewhere typed down the language in the judgment, and the judgment says costs awarded to, to plaintiff. But that's not the circuit clerk taxing cost. It couldn't have happened because there's no bill of cost filed. So if we get to the merits of this thing, which I don't think we do because I think it slots back down to the circuit court for the city of St. Louis, if we get to the merits of the thing, I, I, I think that uh, respectfully they're wrong uh, on the issue of cost. If the panel has any more questions, I've got about 40 seconds. All right. Thank you for your argument. Thank, Thank you. you to both counsel. The case is submitted and the court will file a decision.